Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Thank you, of course, for listening to the Educate US podcast, a proud member of the Leon Media Network. Be sure to engage with our show. You can do that by reviewing our show. Five stars. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think about the show. But you can also email the program, theeducateusshow at gmail.com. All one phrase. We like to keep things simple here. Theeducateusshow at gmail.com. With that out of the way, let's talk about our guest today. Nina Reese is the president and chief executive officer of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Prior to joining the National Alliance, she spent 20 years shaping education policy in the public and private sectors. She served as the first deputy undersecretary for innovation and improvement at the U.S. Department of Ed. Before moving to the education department, Nina worked in the White House as deputy assistant for domestic policy to the vice president. Nina, thank you. First and foremost, thank you for joining our show, of course. Um, There's so much to dive into, you know, with the organization you're a part of, you know, for the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools. And, you know, as we think about that, Something that you know often comes up is, you know, often in that discussion of charter schools, we can sometimes you know find a combative stance between charter and public. I didn't observe that though in an article that you wrote back in May 2021, which I which was refreshing because often in circles that my colleagues and I are in, this does sometimes come up. And something I wondered about in just in your view is, for you, how do you see public and charter schools being able to collaboratively and supportively coexist? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And um, this is a question we get often. What is the difference between a charter school and a traditional public school or a district school? Charter schools are public schools. We've been around now for nearly 30 or a little over 30 years. And um, we are public in a sense that every state law that was created, um, states that were public, that were our students are public school students. They have the same rights as students in other public schools have. And uh, the amount of money that should follow our students to these schools is the same or should be the same as what's in the traditional public school system. The key difference between a charter school and a traditional school, though, is the fact that we are more customized to meet the the needs of the community. Uh, A lot of community leaders set up charter schools uh, because they feel that their students could get a more customized education that benefits the unique needs in that community versus a one-size-fits-all model that is often the feature of a district-run school. Uh, And so the other thing that's great about charter schools is that in those communities where they've thrived, they have raised student achievement, they have boosted graduation rates, they have also raised um, the students' odds of going to college, finishing college, and also in some settings where we've been able to conduct research, we've noticed that the overall income of the students who graduated from charter schools also increased over time. So if you were thinking about a solution to ending um, poverty in some of these communities, the best way, one of the key ways to do so is by giving students access to better schools and charter schools make it possible for students to access these schools in a public setting, which means that they're free, uh, tuition free, open to all, and that they don't have any kind of admission standard. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's that's it in a nutshell. No, it's perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nina, for joining us. Um, so kind of in line with what you were just speaking of, there's like a lot of misconceptions where 
charter schools are concerned. So we're curious about um, what you find to be the most erroneous part of the discourse around charter schools. So when the convo comes up, what tends to be the most erroneous parts of it um, by your estimation and, and, and kind of what is your response to, to that? That's a great question. So, you know, as in my answer to the last question, the fact that they are public uh, has always been an issue because they don't um, reside within a district run system that is usually run by a school district and the infrastructure of a district being governed by school boards. So because they sit outside of that infrastructure, uh, they're not you know, considered um, in, in some communities as being as open and as accountable, but, um, but they are in fact very accountable because the state statutes that create them authorize an entity outside of the school district to authorize them. And those entities are not as political as school boards are. Uh, and they usually have a five-year contract, which uh, stipulates what they need to do in those five years. Usually the, the contract uh, hinges their existence on raising student achievement. And if that doesn't happen, the school can in fact close. So they're accountable to this other entity that the state education agency has created. Often it could be a school district, but usually it's the state education agency or a nonprofit or a university. But in addition to that, they're also accountable to the public because if parents are not interested in sending their kids to these schools, they will not be able to keep their doors open because they don't have any other source of funding. So that's one. The fact that, again, they're, they're tuition free and they, that they don't have admission standards. There's a lot of misconception out there about that. Charter schools cannot administer a test. They are open to all. If they have more kids than they have seats, they have to conduct a lottery. Um, and then the other thing about the, the way this movement came together, most of the individuals who were attracted to this charter school movement were progressive Democrats who wanted to uh, create systems within the public system uh, that were more accountable to the needs of families because they noticed at the time, 30 some odd years ago, that a lot of families were leaving the public system to private schools. Uh, so the fact that they were conceptualized by a lot of individuals on the progressive left and some individuals on the right who wanted to give options to families remains true to this day. And so one of the things we try to do is remind people about the origins of this of this movement. And in many places like Minnesota, the concept came about because teachers wanted to have more freedom uh, to do things differently in the classroom. And in many communities, the best charter schools are in fact those created by teachers who left the district run system to come up with innovative approaches to teaching and learning. So Nina, we're gonna talk about that concept of charter school a little more. Um, in February of 2022, you were quoted in a chart, uh, Chalkbeat article, the next frontier Supreme ca uh, Court case could open doors to religious charter schools. And the quote that you said was, the bottom line is charter schools as public schools can never be religious institutions. And anyone who says differently is flat out wrong. Recently, as I'm sure you're aware, um, Oklahoma approved its first religious charter school. As you previously stated that it's flat out wrong, what are your thoughts now that Oklahoma has passed this religious charter school? And can you tell us why? That's a great question. I still believe that uh, this decision is wrong and it will be litigated 
public schools cannot teach religion uh, and, cha and charter schools are public schools. So, so long as a traditional public school cannot teach religion, a charter school cannot teach religion either. And um, so, of course, Oklahoma is testing the waters there. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think a single court is going to deem that school a viable public school, uh, the way it's constructed and the way it's been approved. Uh, the only way that a charter school could conceivably teach religion is if it was not considered a public school. And as I keep saying, uh, we were conceptualized and created in order to serve the needs of the public as and, you know, uh, reimagine public education as we know it. So in that sense, I don't see a pathway to teaching religion in a charter school right now. Thanks, Tina. Just to follow up on that, you mentioned will be litigated. And of course, uh, uh, already organizations are coming out and, and mentioning that litigation. Uh, I wonder, though, as you know, a parent or a listener, what can they do if they also believe that charter schools are public schools and can't be religious institutions? Well, no one's forced to attend a charter school. So one recourse that any parent has is to opt out of sending their children to this particular school. The school, I don't, from what I understand, it cannot open until these issues are settled. Um, you know, so in that sense, the other way of approaching it really is by voicing your opinion in the court of public opinion, um, by writing about it, and by making sure that the public uh, is aware of the fact that this concept is really being tested more by religious liberties groups that want to see whether a charter can teach religion at a school and less so by parents, conceivably, who are interested in sending their children to, to such schools. Within the private system, there are ways to access uh, a religious education. And if I were a religious school, I would prefer to stay in the private school space uh, because the minute you become a charter school, you have to adhere to the same standards and accountability system that other public schools have to adhere to. Uh, so you lose some of what makes you different and unique. And, and those are also areas that some of these charter schools that are, uh, or some of these religious entities that are trying to open charter schools may not be fully aware of. There are rules and regulations in place beyond what's in place for public schools that will apply to these uh, this particular uh, religious charter school. And the other thing I'll say also is, you know, as private entities, um, look, there are, the, the, when you're public, your students um, come under the same protections that the U.S. Constitution provides um, to other public school students around discrimination, both for staffing and for um, students. And so those protections go away uh, if, if a charter school uh, is teaching religion. And in this case, it you know, they have stipulated that they will not discriminate. So a lot will remain, it remains to be seen. But uh, one of the things that you lose when you send your child to a private school all are some of the protections that you currently get under the U.S. Constitution. Nina, so actually, I, I was very curious. So I'm from um, New York, and I'm aware of quite a few charter schools that were led by parents um started by parents and led by parents um and are still thriving to this day after uh decades um and so i was really curious if you're still seeing 
parents being really active in new school creation, particularly because, you know, when I think of charter schools now, it's so heavily politicized um, that I, I tend to kind of divorce it from sort of the community and parental roots that I know um, are sort of true of that history. And as you've mentioned, like teachers beginning that work um, in Minnesota. Um, so I was just really curious if, if you're still seeing parents and communities really being active in creating charter schools. And then also as a, as a secondary question, sort of how can parents and communities be more active in, in the space? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And so the short answer is yes. Um, and we need to bring more attention to these schools that were created and formed by communities and by parents specifically. What's happened over time, though, is to the extent, um, uh, you know, a school or a network is trying to scale it, there is this impression that the, the leaders of the school are expanding the school and that that's not necessarily aligned with the needs of the community. But the reality is that for those schools to be able to expand in the new communities that they're entering into, parents need to be interested in sending them to those schools. So as an example, Citizens of the World, which is a school based in Los Angeles, has expanded in a few communities. But one of the things they do is they conduct focus groups and make sure that the parent voice is involved and engaged in the process of the application and that parents have a seat on the board and involved in the creation of the school in every shape, every way possible. I also think it's incumbent on us and our organization as an advocacy group, so we don't do this, uh, but there are an increasing number of organizations, parent-led organizations that are interested in the charter school space. So one way also to leverage their voice is by connecting them with individuals who can who know how to apply to start a charter school and help those families create their own schools. Because starting a school is not easy and it's become more complicated over time. There are rules and accountability systems and whatnot that you have to adhere to. But by partnering these family groups, parent organizers with the right uh, partner, uh, you'll also be able to create truly customized schools that fit the needs of the community. And as we saw during the pandemic, a lot of parents took matters in their own hands and created schools in their basements and in different settings. And that movement has continued. This micro school pod movement continues to get a lot of attention. It's still fairly small, uh, but it definitely tells you that if you give parents the agency and the means to create their own schools, they are interested and they are likely to create things that are much more innovative than some of the things that we have currently in the system. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. So you were mentioning about, you know, parent groups and their involvement and voices and, and, and your organization recently put out a survey um, that discussed the way teachers are feeling. Um, and in being kind of placed in the recent culture wars, and particularly uh, the culture wars that have been led with organizations like Moms for Liberty and other anti-government, uh, according to Southern Poverty Law Center, that try to influence schools. 
Um, what protection should teachers be offered so that they can focus more on instruction and nurturing students and not be on the front lines of these political battles? Well, let me just tell you a little bit about the poll because it was a broad national poll conducted by the Harris Poll of both charter school teachers and public school teachers. And what was really interesting is how much our teachers had in common with other teachers. So to your point, one of the key findings was that 94% of the teachers surveyed said that they just wanted to teach and they felt like they have been caught in the crossfire of a culture war. 91% of them said that. Uh, they also, 97% of them were overwhelmed uh, and wanted to make sure that politicians and decision makers really listened to them, to their students and to the families more. So um, so this tells you a lot right, right there. The fact that, um, you know, the news media tends to focus a lot about on these cultural issues and your average teacher just wants to teach math and reading and, and do their jobs. Um, but the other thing that was interesting about the poll is the, the degree to which charter school teachers were interested in teaching. And some of the differences we noticed, for instance, was that 79% of charter school teachers say that they are as or more motivated than they've ever been uh, to teach in their schools. And this doesn't surprise us, for instance, because as you know, when, when you opt to teach at a school, you've already made the decision. And usually because we're smaller and more customized to fit the needs of the community, you're going to attract people who want to be in that school. But the fact that after all these years, a lot of them are as motivated as they were uh, compared to when they started teaching gives us confidence that the freedom and flexibility that come in our charter schools is a good medium for those who want to teach and innovate in, in the education space. And we hope to continue uh, this tradition as we, as we expand. In terms of protections, though, you know, it's going to be the same protections that other public school, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what you meant by protections, but, uh, you know, the, the school district infrastructure certainly has mechanisms to protect schools and teachers. And in our in our particular case, uh, you know, because, again, these are schools of choice and no one's forcing a child to go to these schools, they're a little bit shielded from the politics because, say we have a school called Magic City Academy in Alabama that caters to the needs of LGBTQ plus students. So obviously in that school, the teachers of the school uh, adhere to the same principles and values. And so in that respect, there is no question as to why the students are there and parents are not questioning what's being taught. So that kind of customization certainly helps shield the teacher from some of the controversy that happens in a larger district run system. And you know, you mentioned the freedom, you know, that that charter schools may have or the teachers may have. And you know, it's interesting because I've I've been in a numerous different charter schools, um, not as a teacher, but you know, there to support or as a coach or as a visitor, and also just talking to charter school teachers and leaders, et cetera, and, and have heard, you know, there's like a, a spectrum, right, of where some of the charter school networks 
are much more restrictive and kind of like, here's what we do, here's how we do it. And then there's like the charter schools to to what I'm hearing from you of like where there is a little more, you know, freedom and, and autonomy and support within the school and to really customize to the community. Um, and so what is your take and understanding of that? And, and how does your organization, you know, um, support schools in thinking about sort of that, that line and, and an extreme, so to speak? Um, so that's a great question, Stacey. Uh, so over 65% of our schools are uh, single site schools uh, started by an individual who just wanted to run one school. They might add um additional classrooms or a few grades, but their intent is to really just be one innovative school. About 20 some odd percent are networks of, they're called charter management organizations that have anywhere between five to 10 campuses up to 30 or more. I think that's what you refer to about a more systemic process. Uh, and then there are about 10% or so that are run by for-profit management companies, which again, they may have one size fits all structures, but some of them are also more like a franchise model where they give you the instruction or they give you some back office supports, but the school has the autonomy to conduct things as they wish. Um, so again, this is the beauty of charter schools. No one's forced to attend them. You can pick and choose the type of model that you want. And our preference usually is to have the sort of law that allows you to create different types of schools and that is not adhering necessarily to a one-size-fits-all model. Uh, and Washington, D.C. actually is a great example of that. Uh, nearly 50% of the students in D.C. are in a charter school. And if you go to Ward 7 and 8, I would argue as a resident of this city that, that you have more diversity of uh, pedagogy and school models in those communities than you have in the entire uh, District of Columbia school system, including its private school system, by the way. So uh, you have schools that are focused on STEM education, some of that are, are a little bit more back to basics. There are some schools that were created to, to, to cater to the needs of adult learners. Um, so, you know, so again, in those types of settings, you're going to you're going to have more freedom and you get to pick what you want to teach. And as I said earlier, one of the things that we really want to encourage teachers to do uh, is to create their own school. So if they're not content with what's being offered, chartering allows you the, the, the autonomy and the flexibility to file an application and start your own school. So this is one of the mediums in which you can innovate. Nina, thank you so much just for sharing your insights today. As we come to a close, where can we learn more about the work for, of your your work, the organization work that's going on at the National Alliance for Public Schools, and how can people further engage with what's uh, going on? Well, first of all, thank you again so much for having me on your show. Uh, you can find more information about us in our at our website at publiccharters.org. Uh, you can also follow us uh, on Twitter at Charter Alliance, or you can follow me at Nina Charters. We also have a Facebook page and an Instagram account, uh, but those two mediums should also direct you to those other pages. Nina, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. Okay, so just back with my colleagues here, um, just reflecting on the conversation, what we took away from our discussion with Nina, obviously, and the work that's going on with her organization. Patrice, I'll just I'll go to you first. What what stood out from the conversation? What feels more enlightening? What additional questions were coming up for you? And what felt potentially maybe living under the surface of we didn't really get into it and it didn't feel as clear of where we could be going in a discussion like this? Yeah, I think, you know, I, and I would really love for Stacey to chime in as we were just uh, sort of back channeling on this. I feel like these spaces, this conversation highlighted to me the need to support teachers in understanding connections to policy. So I actually want to shout out one of my fellow Edlock members, um, Diaries George. He's based in Tennessee and he has his whole uh, fellowship where he supports teachers in understanding policy and creating connections mm -hmm. to policy. And um, I just feel like this is so important because in a lot of these spaces, educators just aren't there. Um, and people who have actual experience in the classroom aren't there. Um, and then the same thing too, around creating schools. Like I would love to see more schools and I just don't know the extent to which this is still happening, that teachers and parents and community leaders are still at the helm of school mm -hmm. creation. Um, I'm seeing it. I've been in some new, uh, new school creation fellowships, shout out to high tech high as well, um, where it is, it's filled with teachers and educators and parents and people who are steeped in wanting to make better spaces for young people. But it just makes me wonder like the extent to which once you go above like that creation space and you start to look at where policymaking is happening, who are the voices that are present there? Um, and, and who's really driving these conversations and these policies. Yeah, it's funny, you're right. We were back channeling about that. And I think that's a really good point. But the other thing that was like really striking me from the conversation is like bringing this back to charter school is a public school. Uh, and now with Oklahoma, right, recently passing, and we talk about, we talked about that with Nina, um, Oklahoma passing the first religious charter school and and how there's some tension there. And, and I think that, you know, there is some, it, it'll be really interesting. And I think there is connection to, well, what is the policy around that? And why is there a policy between, you know, separation of church and state and how the um, funding happens and then what protections um, that funding bring to, to people in, in the schools? Uh, and I think you're right. I'm, I'm not, it's not always very clear to teachers uh, on the ground of what that is, because it feels very removed from the classroom experience. And in the interview, you know, Nina even mentioned that, right? Like teachers want to teach, they want to do their job. They want to be with students. They want to be doing the work. And some of this is, feels very removed, but it, but it's connected. And I think it is important um, that teachers understand that and and that parents understand that 
And so they know also what protections are out there that uh, they may not be experiencing. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you both. I think just those two pieces are very eye-opening in that conversation. I also appreciate the fact that we can have a conversation with you know someone from an organization representing charter schools. And obviously, you know, like you both, I've I've worked in public schools. So I've heard multiple sides of this conversation. And I I appreciated that Nina was able to take us through what is the what is the happy middle ground here is what is to the betterment of students. Um and I think that allows for just a, a place for having more of an honest dialogue. And if the conversation continues to be just directed to to our kiddos, then I think that brings us to a, a better place. Thank you for listening to the Educate Us podcast. Subscribe to the show, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, please, please leave us a review or comment wherever you can. We want to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, or just want to be part of the conversation, email us at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. This has been a production of Leon Media Network. I'm Nick Saveri. I'm Patrice Swenson. And I'm Stacey Schultz. We'll see you next time. 